Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Inside Sports is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. It's Howard David live on a Friday. Uh, got a couple of interesting guests to bring to you today. First of all, here's a guy who burst onto the sports writing scene with the well-known Northwest Arkansas Times. <laughs> In his current position as the lead sports columnist for the New York Post, Winner of more than 50 awards for his column. He's Mike Vaccaro. Uh, I, Mike, i got to tell you, I, I'd never even heard of the Northwest Arkansas Times. That wasn't on your radar at all? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that, that was your first job in, in sports writing? Uh, actually, my first job was in, was in, was in the far great, bigger market of OEM, New York. But, uh, but uh, yeah, Fayetteville, Arkansas was my second market. And uh, then I actually, if you talk about moving your way up a ladder, my ladder has a lot of rungs to it. <laughs> well, you also were with the Kansas City Star, and um, was it the Bergen Record? Uh, New York Star Ledger. Oh, the New York Star Ledger, right. And don't forget the Middletown Times Herald Record. So no, I couldn't. That, that, that pretty, I, I, I that couldn't. pretty much covers my ladder. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, these are badges of honor, honest to goodness. Uh, 50, 50 awards for sports writing. I mean, that's that's really quite an achievement. Even you have to be impressed with that. Well, you know, there is, they, 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 they certainly allow me to cover the walls of my office uh, with something other than posters, Springsteen posters. So I guess I've moved up since I was a kid. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's been a fun, a very fun and rewarding career. And, uh, you know, that's one of the aspects that makes it nice. But, uh, you know, it's just a fun job overall. So that's, Well, you know, having grown up in Brooklyn uh, and very famous, very f- uh, familiar with the New York papers, particularly uh, the New York was then New York Mirror, which no longer exists, and then and the New York Daily News, and then back then we would we would, couldn't get the New York Post until the afternoon, so it wasn't like you can, you couldn't get the morning newspaper, and then of course the New York Times, but heck, I'm from Brooklyn, man, we didn't read the New York Times. I remember going to, uh, to do a game at Madison Square Garden, and I walk into the men's room, and who's in there but Dick Young, one of the greatest uh, columnists ever t- to write in New York. And, and Bob Raceman happened to be there from the Daily News, who does a media column, as you know. And as I walked in, I go, my goodness, look at all the superstars you meet in the, in the men's room. <laughs> and Dick Young turned to me, and he goes, 
Well, you must not be including me in this, but no, Dick, <laughs> as you well know, Dick Young was, was very well known, uh, along with a, a lot of other columnists in New York. Uh, the difference, basically, give me the, 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 the breakdown, bones, basic difference between a beat writer and a columnist. Well, beat writer tends to, uh, I mean, well, it doesn't tend to be to be there to sign one, one team and covers that team every day. The way a, the way a police reporter covers the, uh, the cops, the way a uh, political reporter covers the politicos. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Mets beat writer, in, in, in our case, the Post, Mike Puma, you know, he covers the Mets every day, 365 days a year. That's his, that's his territory, that's his beat. He breaks news. Uh, he uh, writes about trends in the team. Uh, because it's around the team so much, she has about as much access to information as anybody can have, whether it's the players in the front office or the people around the team. So, you know, their role is to present the news, you know, write, you know, write the straight game stories, write stories about the team. And the columnists uh, offer their opinions, offer their insights. Uh, you know, we're, we're afforded an opportunity to kind of use our voice a little bit more. Uh, because our pictures are attached to the uh, to, to, to the stories you write, you know we're generally paid for our opinions, paid for our perspective, paid to put things in perspective. I mean, if a if a uh, if, if the time comes for a manager to be fired, it's a columnist who will write that. Uh, you know, partly because that's what columnists do. Partly because it would put a beat writer in a bad position if they're calling for the heads of people they actually have to cover every day. Um, and so that's kind of what the uh, that's kind of what the relationship is between the two, uh, those two branches of the service. Yeah, I, I was talking with Mike Vaccaro, a columnist for the, he's a lead columnist for the New York Post. When, uh, I, uh, when the, the documentary on Michael Jordan and The Last Dance came out, I had Sam Smith from Chicago who wrote the book Jordan Rules. Uh, and I asked, but this was before it came out, the day before the, the, uh, the first episode came out. And I said, Sam, in your book, you were very critical uh, Michael Jordan critical of a variety of things associated with the Bulls. What kind of backlash did you get from that? Did you get any from the team, from the players, and and so on? He goes, no. He said he got it from fans, and he even to the point of threats. I mean, has that ever has that ever happened to you? Well, fans look at me. The stories look so offensive. They want to know exactly what's going on with their teams until you tell them something they don't want to hear. <laughs> And then, you know, suddenly it's not the quite as, you know, it's, it's not quite the news they wanted. Look, I mean, fans have, have, have they want things to, to, to go well with their teams at all times. They, 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 they aren't inclined to want to boo all the time. Most fans want things, good things to happen to their team. And look, when things aren't, good things aren't happening to the team, who's the messenger who's delivering that? It's the guy in the newspaper, it's the guy on the radio who's delivering, you know, harsh commentaries about the team. So... Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it's uh, look. I mean, the people we cover, especially when you're talking about the nine professional teams in New York, they've kind of been through the wars before. They know what the, what the deal is. I mean, they, they they're, they're pros. We're pros. You know, sometimes you clash. Sometimes you have conflict. Uh, fans don't have those responsibilities. Fans are in it because it's it, 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 it's what they love to do. It's what it's how they spend their day. It's how they pass the time. And you know, it's in, in the same way that you know, if, if you're if you're if you're a Billy Joel fan, you don't necessarily want to read a critic saying that they didn't think that Billy Joel's concert was any good. Mm-hmm. If you happen to think it was great, you know the same thing applies for for, for, for sports teams. Now sometimes the truth kind of outweighs that. I mean, if you're writing about a team that's thirty games under five hundred, uh, I, I think you know, 
recognizes had a lot of positives to be gleaned from that. But uh, look, I mean, fans are fans loyalty are to, are, are to themselves, and so as a result, it's you know it, it, what, what, what they want to know is why they can be excited about their team. You know why the investment they make in these teams is a solid one, and why uh, you know why it's going to be worthwhile. Sometimes we get in the way of that happiness. He's Mike Vaccaro, the lead columnist for the New York Post, a guy that I really enjoy reading, uh, along with Mike Lupica and a number of other guys that, that have been uh, in the New York metropolitan area. I'm often wondering why uh, that fans don't display more outrage when it comes to, uh, as an example, uh, the Houston Astros and the, uh, the, the sign stealing from the World Series. And it was my opinion, and maybe I had a knee-jerk reaction, but it was my opinion that the title should have been taken away from him, particularly when the owner says, well, it didn't give us an advantage. And I go, what? It absolutely gave you an advantage. And I'm wondering why there's not more outrage for something like that, for something like Alex Rodriguez, who cheated by using steroids, and yet he's still celebrated in New York. These kinds of things go through my head. Am I off base here? Well, no, I, I, I think the problem is that fans are, 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 are the ultimate subjective audience. I mean, they aren't—they're not required to be objective. In fact, being a fan is the least objective thing there is. Um, I think if you ask a Yankees fan what they think about the Astros, they would tell you that you're absolutely right. They would—they would absolutely be in favor of stripping the Astros of their title, even though it wouldn't necessarily mean that they would get the title. So, and I think if you, tell you, if you ask somebody in Boston about Alex Rodriguez, they probably have a different opinion about Alex Rodriguez than, than the fan in New York does. Um, I think that's part of it. I mean, I, 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 a, a large part of it. I think, look, in Houston, you're not going to get a lot of people who want, who want to uh, impeach the Astros as, uh, as, as, as American League champions or, you know, take away their World Series title a couple of years ago. It's not the way it's going to be. But I do think, look, I mean, I, I, I think it's especially specific to the Astros scandal. I mean, that's something that's just the very, you know, competitive nature of the game. And I think it really affected a lot of people and I think that, uh, you know, I, I do think there were a lot of people who didn't think that the penalties as they were were enough. Uh, I, I do think that, that stripping them of the title was probably a nuclear option, which I think is certainly a debatable subject. But I do think that they, they, they even short of that, they probably weren't penalized quite as harshly as you might have expected them to be, the, the ownership especially. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that's part of it. I think, I, I think when you're talking about fans and asking them what they should be outraged about, a lot of it is just based on, on what you know, what their little prism is, and you know, Yankee fan, you know, probably the same Yankee fan uh, to to kind of underline your argument. The same Yankee fan can can tell you why you're wrong to, to rip Alex Rodriguez, and the same breath tell you that the Astros should be stripped of their title. And uh, <laughs> so you know, that, 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 that's all based on uh, that, that 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 person's prism as a fan. I often wondered, and we're talking with Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post. I often wondered, what if? Uh, the deal with Alex Rodriguez and, and Jennifer Lopez had gone through and they bought the Mets. Uh, I mean, there would always be the reference, wouldn't there, Mike? Uh, if he was, because um, he, he wouldn't be just a guy in the shadows. He would be very visible. But wouldn't that constantly conjure up stories of, oh, yeah, Alex Rodriguez, he wasn't he a guy that took steroids and, and, and so on? Uh, so it, maybe it was just as well that he didn't buy the Mets. times when you referred to Sir Sagmater, you had to refer to the fact that he was twice kicked out of baseball. 
As it relates to, and there's always this controversial subject, Mike, about halls of fame, and and Clemens has not made it in there, and Bonds hasn't made it in there, and A-Rod hasn't made it in there. At some point, uh, and maybe it'll be a change of commissioner, I I don't know what it's going to take, but at some point, do you see any of the quote-unquote members of the steroid era finally getting into the Hall of Fame? I uh, grew up in Brooklyn, as I've told you, and when I was a little boy, I was a huge Brooklyn Dodger fan, and when they moved from Brooklyn to L.A., I said I'd never root for the Dodgers again, and I hope they lose 162 games. <laughs> well, I, I, obviously, the, the, the and, we, and it was a misnomer, too. We all, we all blamed Walter O'Malley, the team's owner, but it wasn't his fault. It was uh, Robert, um, oh, the head of Parks Commission, Moses. Robert Moses really was the guy because he, he uh, refused to let the Dodgers play any place except Flushing Meadow. So as I go back to that time, I, look, I was a huge Jackie Robinson fan. He was my hero. I wore 42 on my baseball uniform. I wore 42 on my football uniform, basketball uniform. But the one travesty remains, Gil Hodges is not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he was the premier first baseman of his time. And I'm just wondering... Well, and apparently the seniors committee now is looking at him very seriously, and I hope he gets in. Well, look, I, I think you can make an argument that he's probably what you would define as a borderline Hall of Famer uh, as a player. Um, you know, certainly if he had voted in, it would be hard to argue against that. Um, uh, he came very close in, the, in his final 
Hodges case, he's a guy who you could certainly make the argument belongs in the Hall of Fame as a player. But when you add to the fact that he was the manager of the 69 Mets, which is right. you know, one of the two, two or three most important baseball teams ever that, 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 that ever competed, and he was the guy that, that, that almost to a man, the 25 men who comprised that team, credit with allowing them to be put in a position to win that championship. You know, the two of them together, to me, puts them over the top in, 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 a, in a huge way. Um, until recently, uh, voters on the Veterans Committee haven't been allowed to, 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 to look at it that way. They're either voting for him as a manager or voting for him as a player. And you can certainly make the case, I'm not saying it's right, but it's a, it's a legitimate case, that on both cases he's probably a little bit lacking, that his numbers ne- don't necessarily com- compare with, with other Hall of Fame first basemen and that he just didn't manage long enough to be considered strictly as a manager. Mm. Um, I think I, it, it, it does seem that now they're allowing a little more latitude to uh, judge a, a man's entire career. And certainly when you look at some of the other people who got into the Veterans Committee anyway, Harold Baines, Ted Simmons, I think that, that Hodges' career as a player alone certainly compares favorably. And that bar certainly seems like it's been cleared. But I do think that when you're talking about a guy like Hodges, the important thing is to remember the entirety of his career, the fact that he had this wonderful playing career, and then he had this magnificent, although far too brief, managing career, and the combination of the two really should land him in Cooperstown. I don't think, I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's a legitimate argument to be made against that when you think the entirety of his career. Well, that brings me to the uh, the lightning rod, and that's Pete Rose. Pete Rose has basically been in jail for 30 years. Now, had he admitted initially uh, to, um, to uh, what was it, Bart Giamatti, that he, in fact, was gambling uh, on his own team right away, he probably would be in the Hall of Fame by now, but he's not. And that leads me to, is Rob Manfred uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the thought right now of, like, revisiting this? And is Pete Rose... Pete Rose didn't do steroids, but he broke a, a law that's right over the every clubhouse in Major League Baseball. Gambling is prohibited, uh, and it's a lifetime ban and so on. But is it enough to say he's been basically paying that price for 30 years, and doesn't he, based on his numbers, uh, do, doesn't he deserve to be put in the Hall of Fame? I've always thought that it was two separate issues with Pete Rose. I think that he earned his lifetime ban from participating in the, in the game. I think that baseball has the right and, and is right to make sure that, you know, over the course of the last 30 years, he hasn't been allowed to manage, he hasn't been allowed to coach, he hasn't been allowed to have any kind of active role within the game. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, that gambling is that tenuous an issue that you have to come down hard on the people who don't uh, follow the rules in that regard. And so from that standpoint, I think baseball is absolutely in the right. Where I think it overstepped its boundaries was in keeping him off the ballot all these years because I do think that you know baseball they did the Hall of Fame and trust the baseball writers and then the veterans committees to give them a representative roster of Hall of Famers they, 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 they certainly trust us now dealing with steroid users they trusted us for decades on other scoundrels of the game who have either gotten in or not gotten in based on our judgment and the fact that, that Rose was singularly taken off the ballot or never even allowed to be on the ballot to me is wrong. I mean, let the voters speak. I'm not so sure. People think that if he would have been on the ballot right away that he would have gotten in. I think he probably would have eventually, but I think it would have been one of these long, torturous processes 
like we're going through with the steroids guys, where, I mean, I think initially there would have been small support, and then maybe as time goes by and you revisit it, he might have gotten enough to get in, and I think that that's what should have been allowed to happen. The fact that he hasn't ever even been given the opportunity to make a case to be in the Hall of Fame, and to me, I've always thought it would be, uh, I've always thought it a missed opportunity that, you know, if Rose gets enshrined on his plaque into eternity for the next thousand years that the, that the Hall of Fame stands, you know, all of his accomplishments should be on that plaque, but also the reason why he was ultimately kicked out of the game. And I think that sends a powerful message. If into eternity on this man's Hall of Fame plaque, it said that he was banned from the game because he gambled on his team. And I think that sends a real powerful message. So I, th- I, I do think these are two different issues. I think that, uh, that, that, that baseball had every right to keep him away from the game after he admitted that he took part in the, in, in the, in the, ultimate, in the ultimate mortal sin of baseball was gambling on the sport. But I do think that his career has always merited at least the judgment of people as to whether he belongs in the Hall or not. Yeah, that, you just opened up my brain a little bit now because I'm thinking about Ty Cobb, who was a notorious racist. Uh, Babe Ruth, as great a home run hitter as he was, I mean, he was a, no, a notorious a woman chaser and, and alcoholic and, and whatever. And then you come to, um, oh, I don't know, you just think about certain athletes. Well, let's go to O.J. Simpson. Uh, why is it on his plaque in the Hall of Fame in Canton that, uh, you know, he was on trial for, uh, for murdering his wife and only because he had Johnny Cochran as his lawyer did he beat the rap? Why is that not on his plaque? Obviously, I'm, I'm being facetious here, but I'm just wondering how, at what point do you stop opening up that can of worms? got a, a, a chat uh, advice. A, a guy called, uh, just wrote to me, said, uh, Rose gambled as a manager, not sure if he did as a player, so therefore he should be in as a player. And I don't know, the, the, the laws of baseball are pretty, pretty firm. You, you go into a locker room, and I've seen it over the door. It's plain as day. If you gamble on the sport, you will be suspended for the rest of your life. I mean, it's clear. Right. I mean, he, right. Was, he, was, he was in a major league clubhouse pretty much continually for 30 years. And, and, and you're right. I mean, if you walk into a clubhouse, I mean, I remember the first time I walked into a baseball clubhouse when I was a 27-year-old reporter. I mean, it's impossible to miss. The first thing you see is the, is, is, is the, uh, is the gambling warning. Now, of course, I mean, alongside that is the steroid warning. And, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's impossible to minimize just how brazen it was for Rose to do what he did. Now, I agree. I mean, uh, we, we don't know about what his proclivities were as a player. Certainly, nothing has ever been levied against him. Uh, I think it's illogical to think that he only started learning how to gamble uh, the day he got a job as a manager, but that's really beside the point. I mean, to me, I don't think there's any question that Rose's credentials as a manager aren't being, weren't ever 
position as a manager in the Hall of Fame. So to me, I think you do need to take it as a separate issue that uh, what he did as a player, which is to assemble more hits than any player who ever lived, you know, deserves to be, you know, a form for inclusion or exclusion. And I think that we've never had that opportunity. And that's again, you know, part of what bothers me as a voter is that people always the the, the, the first thing to do is, are you guys you guys screwed Pete Rose? No, actually, we didn't. We had, we had we've never had the opportunity to vote on it ever, and uh, that's a shame. Yeah, it is. Um, look, having been around Pete Rose a couple of times, I can't say it any other way, but he's not the guy I would cheat off on my SATs. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> and he's not, you know, honestly, he's not the most likable guy in the world either. And, you know, he does this, he's done this thing for years where he, he has his, you know, autograph sessions at Cooperstown on Hall's Fame weekend. And, you know, basically his livelihood now is he's in Las Vegas and, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll sign anything and say anything, you know, for a price. And that's sad, but whatever. People make people are entitled to make a living. Uh, I, he has admitted to what he did, although it's not exactly been falling on his sword admitting what he did. I think that's probably rubbed people the wrong way. But, again, that's also beside the point. To me, I mean, you know, whether, whether he's good company, whether he's a guy you want to have, you know, share a beer with, is beside the point. I mean, was, was, was he a... Was he a player worthy of enshrinement is the question that really comes down to it. When it comes to the Hall of Fame, you know, we're not saying Peter. We're not going to determine whether it's in the Pearly Gates or not. That's a lot That's a lot different subject. We're just saying that he gets going to go into the place in Cooperstown where they have all the plaques and all the memorabilia. And I would love to have had the opportunity to weigh in on that. Yeah, he, he's Mike Vaccaro, the lead columnist for the New York Post. You wrote an article on Monday, about 50 years ago on Monday. It was a dinner at the Old American Hotel in New York City, uh, where Gail Sayers was presented uh, with an award for courage. Uh, I want to say it was um, named after the previous owner, or the one-time owner, or was it the George S. Hallett award, Hallis Award That's right. for, for courage. And he then gave a famous speech uh, where he paid tribute to Brian Piccolo. Uh, of course, there was the, the Brian Song movie that came out, I think, a year later. And like everybody, I saw the movie and it, it was emotional. There's no doubt about it. I mean, just a mere story. But I promise you, Mike, that until that movie came out, a lot of people didn't know who Brian Piccolo was. He wasn't a star player. People forget that he, I believe he led the country in rushing when he was at Wake Forest, but he made the mistake of being drafted the same year as Gale Sayers by the Chicago Bears. And that's the thing that, that, that I found fascinating about about putting that column together is that um, certainly the, 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 uh, I, I, I did it entirely uh, based on archival clips of, of, of that time. Um, I didn't I, I didn't use the movie. I didn't use the book I Am Third as a reference point. I mean, I, I, can't, I stumbled across the, the anniversary um, just by going through the archives. And what's amazing to me was a Exactly what you're saying is the reaction in the hall that night. Um, you know, when, when, when Sanders kind of brought the name up, you know, this wasn't the Chicago Writers Association, the Football Writers Association. It might have hurt Brian Piccolo, but it was kind of an obscure name for people in that room. And certainly people beyond that room had no idea who he was. But what really struck me was that, uh, obviously we all remember uh, Billy D. Williams giving this speech as Gail Sayers in the movie. And, you know, in the same way that the, that the, that the uh, Gary Cooper speech in Pride of the Yankees was mm. you know, a, little punched, a little punched up, and it was a little different than the actual Gary speech, just the, the kind of Hollywood is a little bit, with the exception of the one famous line. 
their, t- their tape recorders, it's the exact same speech presented the exact same way that they did in the movie. So that, to me, that was incredible to me as someone who's watched that movie a hundred times and, and reacted the same way to that scene a hundred times was realizing that as powerful a Hollywood moment as it was, it was actually a real-life moment with Gail Sayers words. And to me, the notion of what that must have been like to be there listening to this as he was saying it, uh, you know, even as I was writing it, I mean, you know, I was, I was getting emotional. And it's interesting what the reaction to that column has been, Howard, because I mean, especially during the, the last two months of lockdown, you know, I've, I've written a lot of different kind of columns that have touched different kinds of nerves. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I just got, to, I, I'm still getting replies five days later, four days later, about that column. Um, these are people who were moved by the movie, people who were moved by the, by, by the friendship. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, especially. And I guess it makes sense when you consider that I think people are kind of a little more in tune with their feelings right now than maybe they are in regular times because they have more time to think about it. I think maybe they're inclined, maybe I would hope many of us are more inclined to, to, the, to see the better angels of our nature, and I think maybe that makes a, a story like that more appealing. Um, but it really is amazing how many people seem to have been affected by that, by the fact that, uh, you know, this is actually what the man said. You know, these are his words. This wasn't a script writer doctoring it to extra, extra effect. It's exactly the words that Gail Sayers used, and to me, that's what makes it really remarkable. Uh, you say in here, quoting, I-, I love Brian Piccolo, and I'd like all of you to love him too, and tonight when you hit your knees, please ask God to love him. Um, when, it, when I saw it in the movie, um, it, it, everything flashed back to me, Mike, because some years ago, I used to do the Hall of Fame game for CBS Radio every year and go to Canton, and one day I'm walking towards the Hall of Fame to go in. And I had been there, I don't know, a dozen times. But I still wanted to go in there. And who's standing outside but Gail Sayers? And he's by himself, which was it struck me as extraordinary. So I went up to him and I said, uh, Mr. Sayers, we don't know each other. I said, but I'm Howard David. I'm here to broadcast the Hall of Fame game. And I had to come over and say hello to you because I've been a fan. He said, I appreciate that. And if you know Gail Sayers... He's really kind of an introverted guy. He's very quiet. Yep. And he, um, I said, I, I can't walk away from you without talking about Brian's song and your relationship with Brian Piccolo. Uh, was there anything, I mean, what we saw, was that the whole story or was there more to it? He goes, oh, no, there's, there's a lot more to it, but you don't have the kind of time for me to sit here and tell you, and, and, and I have things that I have to do. But just to say that Brian Piccolo was a special guy, would be underestimating his value and his importance to me because keep in mind, I want to say it was Sayers' second year maybe that he went down for an extended period with a knee injury and Piccolo became the number one option in the, in the backfield for the Bears and he had a really good season. And if you remember in the movie, he helped uh, Sayers work his way back into shape by helping him work out. And I asked Sayers about that. He goes, oh, it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. He didn't. He wanted me in the best shape I could be, so he could challenge me for the number one spot. And it was uh, it was that injury that actually uh, the reason why Sayers wanted the, uh, the 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 most courageous player. For. So it, it kind of all came full circle. And, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's pretty. It, 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 it's, it's still pretty powerful stuff to revisit all these years later because it's just uh, it's definitely a friendship, you know. And and, and uh, you know. It, What's interesting is that, is that someone, a reader, told me that one of the things that, that, struck, me, that struck him about what I wrote, and it occurred to me only after the fact, is that, you know, I never got into the black-white 
you know, in, in the long run, you know, really was kind of irrelevant because it's just about, you know, how we would treat our own friends. We, in the middle of this COVID-19 and, and we were both, uh, you know, following the rules and listening to what the scientists and the doctors are telling us and so on. And then we hear that <clears throat> some states are, are getting back into phase one for whatever that is. And included in that as well, essential businesses. And then there was somebody, I, I don't forget what, where, what town it was, but basically was given a summons for opening a non-essential business. And I want to say it was a tanning parlor. Uh, so let's, is tanning parlors essential? No. Nail salons? I would think not. But to the sports fan, the sports fans' sports are essential. So having said that, um, it, 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 I can't imagine that we're going to start playing baseball uh, immediately without a, a period of time where are we sure this is safe? And you had a column, I think, this week where – if baseball, uh, if it doesn't, you say it may never fully recover if it loses the season this way. Do you think baseball will start again? And what kind of a format? Are we talking about half the season, a little bit more than half the season? Players are bickering about what kind of money they're going to lose and so on. So where are you on this? Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's two things with, with, with baseball specifically is that look, I, I think all sports uh, – conscience is to make sure that, 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 that safety is paramount. Safety has to be the only thing that matters in terms of in terms of can this actually be doable. And so I, I think we can all be in agreement that that has to be the that has to be universal. Uh, the thing about baseball which is unique, but hockey and, and basketball don't have to deal with this because their guys are already getting paid. They're sitting here almost over so money isn't quite the issue with them that it is with baseball. I think we're gonna have similar conversations with football, once we come closer to football season, in terms of uh, what, what revenues are going to be lost if fans aren't allowed back in the stadiums, but uh, to me, the baseball issue is which 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 what's difficult with baseball is that uh, there is this you know, kind of impromptu labor issue of of owners and, and players disputing what the compensation should be, and it's that's the part that, that, that that's troubling. If that is what causes baseball to not come back and play. Uh, that's going to be a problem. If, 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 look, I mean, if, 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 if reasonably it's, it, it, it's, it's unsafe to play baseball this year, people would certainly understand that. There would be no backlash to that. There would be an understanding. And I think if players who have underlying health risks decide to play this year, I think fans would understand that as well. Um, players with diabetes, players who have recovered from cancer, players whose wives are expecting babies and so forth. I mean, I think that you know, these are all individual things that, that, that people would certainly understand uh, if it's not, you know, if, 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 if the games are given a medical go-ahead. But the problem goes when you're talking about, you know, having another one of these arguments between billionaires and millionaires that nobody has any tolerance for, has any patience for, at a time when 40 million people are out of work and 102,000 people have died. And that's just not something that anybody wants to see there publicly. And so baseball has to figure that part of it out. Um, you know, it, 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 the season can't die in the vine because over money, it just can't. And I'm not minimizing either side's problems. I'm not certainly not minimizing the players who have 150 years 
for, for the leverage they own in this, in, 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 in this regard. And the, and the owners have legitimate uh, issues in terms of how much money they're going to lose about the Aspen stands. Those are legitimate issues, but those can't be aired publicly, and those can't be the reason why, why baseball doesn't come back. Because it just, people aren't going to tolerate that. There are more options for sports fans now than there were 26 years ago, the last time they were on strike. And if the last two months have allowed us to do anything, it's forced us to kind of understand there are other things to occupy our free time. And, you know, this is the wrong time for baseball to basically dare its fans to remain loyal to it in spite of everything. Um, so that said, I mean, I, I, I'm still of the belief that while it's going to be ugly before it gets pretty, that I do think they'll come to a, to, to, a, uh, to a resolution at some point in the next week or two. And I think the notion would be that, you know, to try and start the season again, spring training in mid-June, the, the idea of starting a, you know, a season that lasts anywhere between 80 and 100 games, lasting from July until uh, early November with, with playoffs, and, and take it from there. Now, how history looks at that season, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, wait for history to figure that part of it out. Yeah, but one thing we so, don't – yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Lee columnist of the New York Post, Mike Vaccaro. I think football's in a different situation because it seems the schedule is is etched in stone. The only question is, are there going to be fans in the stadium? Are they going to be sitting uh, six feet apart, seven feet apart? Are we going to have a third of the stadium full? Uh, does that matter terribly? Because when September 10th rolls around and Kansas City plays Houston in the first game of the season, I think people are going to are they going to forget there's nobody in the stands? Probably not, but they'll get their football, and I think that's that's the most important thing. Football is a different animal than every other sport at this point. I mean, football really is, you know, we argue about the term national pastime. Clearly it's more popular than baseball. It has been for a couple of decades now. Football is something that unifies the country in, in a, lot, a lot of ways, you know, whether it's because of gambling, because of fantasy football, because of, you know, team loyalties. Football is once a week. It's something that that, that, that that generates momentum between Monday and Saturday, and kind of explodes on Sunday. Um, and and, and we, we've, we've actually said for years that football could probably be played one of these days in TV studios, um, if not for the fact that that, that that it is kind of cool to be in a stadium with eighty thousand fans really engaged. But um, you know, would, would that be different? Of course, it would be. But um, to me, football more than any other sport. Again, assuming that there are that, that, that the health concerns are addressed, you know that that that'll survive no matter what. I, I mean, I get that it's going to be, that, that'll, that all sports are going to be weird when there's no fans in the stadium for as long as that's you know kind of, kind of protocol. But I do think that that, that fans will adjust to that, and I think the football fans will adjust um, more swiftly than any of the others. You mentioned the fact that this is a nine pro sports town in New York. 
And I, I think to all, about all the teams and the success or failures. And, you know, the Giants certainly have had more success in recent years uh, with two Super Bowls. Um, the Jets, it's been since Joe Willie Namath was playing quarterback in 1970, Super Bowl three and so on. And, and, and people use that same torn, worn out phrase, same old Jets. But I don't think there's more of an enigma in New York sports than the New York Knicks. And you wrote an article about how close they came to getting Steph Curry in the draft. Uh, I, I think if he had gone one more spot, they would have gotten him in the draft. But I think back, Mike, to it seems that every time, and I'll go back as far as Kiki Vandeweghe, every time the Knicks had a shot at getting another quote-unquote star, this was the guy that was going to take him over the top. And we've seen this time and time again with the Knicks. And the frustration continues. So now Leon Rose comes in. And we don't know how success, how much success he's going to have. Time will tell. But fans you know, gave uh, Jim Dolan the business in saying sell the team at the Garden one night. Is he the root of the problem or is it a combination of things? It's a combination of things. I, 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 look, I don't think that Jim Dolan is a good owner, a good basketball owner anyway. It is interesting that there are a lot of Rangers fans who are going to find with a lot of complaints about Jim Dolan, the hockey owner. So it is interesting, but I think that, uh, that, 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 that uh, I think he probably cares about basketball more than hockey, or at least feels he has more of a, of a, of a, of a uh, he has more to say about basketball than hockey. So that allows him to be a better hockey owner because he stays out of the way and kind of lets his people uh, do their thing. But um, certainly his, you know, he, he kind of sets the tone, but, you know, he, I, I think he thought he was doing the right thing when he when he hired Isaiah Thomas. He thought he was doing the right thing when he let Isaiah Thomas hire Larry Brown, who was a Hall of Fame coach. I think he thought he was doing the right thing when he hired Phil Jackson, and Phil Jackson turned out to be a fiasco. I mean, there's a lot of characters in this, and it's been a lot of years now, and it's just remarkable that they've just never been able to figure out the right guy to be in charge, the right guy to, to kind of empower and how to make that happen. And yes, they've had some bad luck. I mean, look... It, 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 it is amazing that they, they, they won the very first draft lottery in 1985, and they've never again in the years since ever moved up in the draft, which is hard to fathom. The, 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 the bad luck involved with that over the course of 35 years is staggering. Um, and look, I mean, it's, they've, they, they, they've had the misfortune of, you know, for a lot of years being aligned in, 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 in conferences with the Bulls when they were good, uh, when the Knicks were good, you know, and. You know, even later on, when they had a little bit of a resurgence when Carmelo Anthony was here, um, you know, they were still, they never got that far, but they were still going to have to figure out a way to beat the Heat, which was a super team. So uh, it, it, it's just been, a, it, it's, it's been 20 years of nonstop calamity and a lot of banana peels. Hmm. And you can't, blame, you can't blame that all on one guy. Now, he's obviously the guy who takes ultimate responsibility because he's the guy who signs the checks. But it's been a real group effort in terms of making the next uh, kind of the calamitous act they are. It's a shame because, you know, you know this, Howard, that the city never feels the same way as it does when the Knicks are good, when there's an important playoff basketball game at the Garden. I mean, I, I tell this to a younger generation of sports writers all the time, and they almost look at me like Grandpa telling silly <laughs> stories. But, you know, it's very true. As popular as baseball is in New York City, there was a time when baseball season didn't start until the day after the Knicks were eliminated from playoffs. That includes... <laughs> Some years when the Yankees were defending champions. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't until the Knicks of 1997 or 98 or 99 or 2000 were eliminated from the playoffs that people really turned their attention to the Yankees.
We, we don't know about Leon Rose. We don't know if he's going to be a success or not. Uh, the Lakers have gone that route of having an agent uh, making, making decisions, and it certainly doesn't hurt if you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. That does give you a better chance to win. So what's your gut tell you about Leon Rose? Uh, he certainly knows the league, and he certainly knows a lot of the players. Do you see success on the horizon for him? Look, I mean, I don't think there are a lot of sure things anymore, and certainly he's not that. But I do think you, what you want when you hire somebody is you want to see what their relationships are like, what their relationships are like with the most important people in the sport. And look, I mean, what, what Leon Rose is able to, to, to allow that to translate into success for the Knicks, we'll only be able to see. But I don't think it was as much of a leap of faith as some might have thought. Um, like you said, I mean, this is this, this is not a unique path anymore. I mean, and you know, he, he was he was highly successful in a highly competitive business for a lot of years. Um, so he has the personality, I think, and he has the skill sets to be able to, to bring the Knicks back. Now, will that happen? I mean, you know, the, 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 the constraints of, of building a winner at the NBA. Are kind of are, are, you know they're, they're kind of onerous, and so the odds are against anybody really until they actually establish something, and that's the problem. Is you, you need to actually establish it so people want to be a part of it. I mean, look what happened across the river in Brooklyn. I mean, the reason why why Durant and Kyrie Irving wanted to be part of the next is because there was the perception that they had kind of turned the corner and then established something uh, fairly or unfairly, and so that's why they're there. The Knicks the exact opposite right now it's building that that Rose has to do right now in order to make a, to make a difference and to make it happen there um, that's not going to happen in five minutes and I think that's the that's the key but I do think the Knicks fans if they've learned anything over the last 20 years is that patience is a virtue and I think if there is light at the end of the tunnel they're willing to invest a few more seasons in order to have a payoff if that's possible yeah, well, let's, uh, and we still don't know Leon Rose is going to obviously come up with the next guy that's going to be the coach and, uh, and reading all the articles the last couple of days, it would be kind of gallows humor. It would be comical if Kenny Atkinson was ne- the next Knicks coach. Well, I mean, I think that would actually be a smart I mean, there, there, there are three, you know, a couple of guys out there where it would make a difference as a coach. I mean, he would be one. Thibodeau is obviously the one who I think is going to get the job, and I think he would do a great job here. Uh, I, I think what the Knicks right now, need right now is present anything as a shot of gravitas. Um, in his own way, Rose brings that because people behind the scenes know how influential he is. But I mean, I'm talking about a guy who can kind of just walk in and, say, and, and, and bring that gravitas with him. And I think a guy like Thibodeau would do that. I think a guy like Atkinson would do that. I think a guy like Jeff Van would do that. I think that's what's, that, that's required. There, I mean, a coach alone isn't going to snap his fingers and make the winners. But I think that you know, someone who's able to establish something real is what the Knicks really need, and I think any of those guys would be able to bring that. All the articles you've written, all the time you've been in New York, all the uh, all the athletes that you have written about, the greatest New York athlete. If it's not Secretariat, who is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, it, it, it's, it, in the time that I've been here, um, I'm going to say it's probably Mariano Rivera because he was the best at his position that I probably ever lived. And he did, it, he did it in pressure back situations and did it over the course of a number of years. And he did it for the Yankees. And again, I think you can't discount that. Um, I, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun to be able to chronicle his, the entirety of his career. And uh, to kind of put that in perspective, the other things I've done now, uh, I, 
I would put Eli Manning in that conversation because he's a guy who's, you know, twice, you know, led the Giants to unexpected championships. And when you're the quarterback in New York, that kind of automatically makes you the big man on campus. Um, the guy I think that just barely missed out if the Knicks would have won any of those times that he came close, I think Patrick Ewing would be doing a lot different in the city. And he'd probably be the coach of the Knicks for the last 10 years, probably also, just because of, 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 of what his legacy would have been. But uh, if I'm going to name one guy, it's probably going to be Greg Uh Is Patrick Ewing in the conversation for Nick Coach? Probably not. I mean, look, I mean, he's got his own problems with Georgetown right now. Um, he doesn't have the greatest relationship with the Knicks. I mean, he's got a better relationship than it's been. Um, and I just, I, I, look, I, I just think that that would be a that would be kind of tip of the cap to nostalgia more than anything else. I think what the Knicks need is an established NBA presence, and I think that's what the you know the three leading candidates bring you that that even Patrick Ewing can. Mike, let me ask you one final question. Well, all the, well, all the time, it, and it didn't take you. I mean, you, you, let's face it, you made it up through the ranks. You, you, you were working for some pretty good newspapers before the post. Is there uh, anything left undone? Uh, do you, have you? Would you like to go back and maybe change something? Have you achieved what you set out to do? And if not, what's left? Well, I mean, this is the God's honest truth. I, mean, I, I wanted to be the sports columnist for the New York Post since I was seven years old. My father used to bring the post home from, from work uh, on the LIR every day. Specifically, wanted to work at the post as a sports columnist. And so, you know, how many people do you know who were able to actually, you know, were able to say what they wanted to do when they were seven years old and actually got a chance to do that? So, certainly, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do a thing in terms of, of how my career has has uh, has turned out. Probably, if I had the wisdom of years when I first started writing the column, I think I might have uh, been a little more. Uh, I would have been a little less mean-spirited in certain things that I've written. I, I mean, I, I think I've gotten past the point where I get a kick out of, out of writing cheap shots at people. Um, I think I, I think that's counterproductive. I think it's in the age of Twitter, it's it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overwhelming temptation sometimes to be the wise guy and come into the room and, and to fire off a funny shot. Uh, and, 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 and I think that you know, in my younger days as a columnist, I used that particular form and bully pulpit to take a cheap shot here, a cheap shot there, and I do regret that because I think I think the real skill and the craftsmanship of writing a column and being able to get your point across in the king's English and not in, taking, in, in, in the in the language of the street corner wise guy. That said, you know what? I mean, it's the New York Post, so hopefully they take it with a grain of salt. But uh, I do think that I've kind of learned from that. I think that I'm still as hard on those who deserve it in this market as anybody. But I do think that I've, I've, I've tried to be a little less mean-spirited. And, if, and I least I hope so, because I think that, that uh, that's kind of the way we want to do it. We want to be able to get our point across without being uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the mean guy in the room. Leave the mean-spiritedness to your colleague, Phil Mushtink. He does that well. <laughs> I, think, I think he would say thank you and shake your hand. <laughs> Well, I know I know Phil for a long time, so I'm not saying anything behind his back. And he's he's still credited in my for my money with a great great line he's had of playing golf with him one day in some some charity thing, and he said, "If it's not catered, it's not journalism." <laughs> and it was so true. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I, I you know I, I I'm a big fan of yours. I've told you that before, um, and now I'm a bigger fan. Now I know you got a dog. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a dog guy, so I'm a, I, I love dogs. And Mike, I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, you do a great job. I look forward to reading your column whenever you, whenever you uh, have it in the newspaper. And uh, hopefully um, we're going to get sports back and people can 
focus on some things that don't involve this COVID-19, but the most important thing is, Mike, stay safe. You too, Eric. Thanks for having me on. It's great talking to you. Thanks so much. He is Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. He's a lead columnist. Not some chump writer, man. I mean, he is the lead columnist. He's the big dog. He's written, I mean, I, I, I can't even, the guy wins 50 awards for writing a column. You know he's done something. I would um, take issue with the Gil Hodges because I'm prejudiced. Gil Hodges should have been in the Law Hall of Fame years ago. Eight, eight All-Star games. 378 home runs in an era where home runs were not flying out of the park like they are now. Won the Golden Glove Award nine times. Best fielding first baseman in baseball. He was the best first baseman of his time. My goodness, what do you need for proof? Get him in the Hall of Fame already. It's ridiculous he's not in. Long time ago, he should have been in. I remember one year he came, it came down between he and Bill Mazeroski. Now, Bill Mazeroski was a really good second baseman for Pittsburgh and hit the game-winning home run to give him the 1960 World Series over the Yankees. But you want to compare Gil Hodges to Bill Mazeroski? Come on. Come on. It's like taking filet mignon versus spam. You can't win that argument, man. Not with me. Uh, Yeah. I got that off my chest. I said what I had to say. I think this is um, this is a, a great time of reflection uh, in terms of where we are in the world of sports. Do I want to see baseball come back right away? Sure, I do. Um, I think football is, is in pretty good shape where it is. The NBA, give it time. Adam Silver has made a lot of right decisions, and he is the great guiding light for the National Basketball Association, and he got the great lead from David Stern. I mean, David Stern was an effective commissioner. The difference is David Stern had an understanding of marketing, and he showed it, and he knew how to market. He stopped marketing players, and he started marketing teams. Now I think it's more towards marketing players again. Not that it's the wrong, a right or wrong thing. It, it is what it is. I mean, you watch the, the last dance with Michael Jordan and the Bulls, we got entertainment value out of that. Ten episodes. Uh, I think they probably should have at least acknowledged uh, his personal life with, with his wife and his kids and all of that just to kind of make the story complete. Was it essential? No. We saw Michael Jordan for who he, who he was on the basketball court. He was the greatest player of his time. People want to go out and say, no, he's the greatest of all time. I'm not going there. It's not that he's not in the conversation. He sure is. But if you ask Guys that have played the game, who the greatest player of all time was, well, they're going to refer to players they've played against in their career. I understand that. And so when you see the players of the last 12 years, 13 years, they're going to refer to LeBron James. LeBron James has been the lightning rod. He's been the guy. He won a championship with Miami, won two. Um, you know, was that whole thing with, uh, with uh, taking his talents to, to South Beach, was that in, in, in good judgment? No, it wasn't. So that's the advice he got. So what? How long do you want to hold on to that? We've been there. We've done that. We've seen it. We've heard it. He won championships in Miami. He went back to Cleveland, won a championship in Cleveland. And now he's trying to win a championship in Los Angeles with the Lakers. 
Would I like to see him do it? Yes. I don't even mix words. I'd like to see him do it. Because Michael Jordan had six. And it's not a question of, well, who won more? It's a question of what's right is right. Uh, is Tom Brady the greatest quarterback of all time? People say yes because he won six rings. And I get that. And, and I can understand that. And I'm not going to fight it. But for every person that thinks he's the greatest quarterback, tell me how many people sat there and watched the golf last Sunday and when he was playing like a rank amateur and couldn't hit the ball off the tee and kept hooking it into the woods or fading it out to the right and never hit the fairway. And then he makes that one great chip, uh, that one great shot from 100 yards away, knocks it in for a birdie. And that was his best shot, clearly, of the day. And it was the best shot that took place last Sunday. But at the end of the day is who won? Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning. Now Manning, uh, uh, Woods and Mickelson now coming out and they're basically saying, we want this to be an annual event. And I couldn't agree more. I think it would be fantastic. There's a lot of good athletes right now. A lot of good hockey players that are good golfers. There are some NBA players that are really good golfers. Steph Curry comes to mind. I would like to see him participating in that kind of an event. I think it would be tremendous. There was an average of 5.8 million viewers on Sunday with a peak of 6.3 million viewers. So people, was it a combination of things? Yeah, they, we got to see live golf. We got to see Tiger Woods. We got to see Phil Mickelson. We got to see uh, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. Four recognizable names. Will it be as big a success a year from now? I don't know. Depends on who's, who's in the conversation. Because by then we expect that we're going to have live sports and it's not going to be the standalone attraction for sports fans. But I asked Mike Vaccaro, I said, why is there not more outrage by fans when certain things happen? Example, when the New England Patriots were found uh, on Spygate or uh, when Brady, the equipment guys in New England, were uh, taking air out of the, out of the football. Uh, why was there not more outrage outside of New England? Um, why was there not more outrage? I mean, I'm seeing uh, Lance Armstrong and all these features, 30 for 30 on ESPN. I'm saying, why are we even talking about this guy? He was a juicer. He cheated. And we're paying tribute to a guy who cheated? I got a problem with that. I'm telling you straight up, I got a problem with that. I'm old school when it comes to you earn it, you work for it. And if you think that there's not a bunch of guys in the NFL using steroids, you're kidding yourself. Because if you've got a defensive lineman who weighs 295 pounds and he's going up against a 265-pound offensive guard, and if you think that guy is going to give away 30 pounds in weight to a bigger man and be able to hold his ground, you're kidding yourself. I can't say, swear that 100% of pro football players are using stuff. But I think to say that it's not happened is being a bit naive. So having said that, deep down inside, I'm a sports guy. I love sports. It doesn't make any difference. What, if they're playing, if they're keeping score, I'm in. You know? So it's... um. It's good. It's good to be in this business, and I'm delighted to be doing this podcast for you. Hopefully, you enjoy it. I ask you to stay safe. Have a great weekend. I'm Howard David. 
This is Howard David Live. You have a great day. And to close out the show, a friendly reminder that Howard David Inside Sports is brought to you by betonline.ag. Go to betonline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100, and they'll match your first deposit up to $1,000. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube